Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. So Raj, uh, last week when we were together, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the personal growth and the awakening of what it meant for you to heal as a human being and, you know, increase your awakeness in the world and what that's meant. This week, we're going to pivot a little bit more to what that's meant for your impact on the world since then, in particular, the journey that you've been on since Firms of Endearment all the way up to this book and of course at the heart of that the conscious capitalism movement so let's jump in and start to talk a little bit about firms of endearment because that's sort of this pivot point for you sure happy to do that well i want to i want to draw the sort of a little bit of a parallel here between the inner journey and the outer journey a little bit in particular um you know when you read the book one of the pivotal points for you is you know you sort of fall into marketing and you fall into being a professor of marketing and you have some degree of success but there's a point where you're starting to have diminishing returns on that front and um then along comes this book firms of endearment and it really changes things opens you in a way um and and that's really where the root of conscious capitalism then came from was from that book it inspired a lot of people inspired the workshop that we ended up having or the the weekend retreat and and the people that were there that kicked off conscious capitalism so i'm um i'm curious about that experience of of teeing up that book and the shift that went for you in the process of writing it yes yeah, so as you said i kind of fell into being a marketing professor uh, it was just a, a way to get back to the US. I, mean, I was completing my MBA in India and I had a job lined up and, and I thought that was going to be my life. I was going to be a consultant you know, in Bombay. And uh, one day I come down for breakfast and a group of my friends were dressed up and going somewhere. Uh, we didn't have any classes that day. I said, where are you guys going? So we're going to the US Information Agency to pick up GMAT applications. I said, why do you need that? We're already getting our MBA. I said, no, we want to apply for a PhD in business in the US. I said, oh, I didn't know you could get a PhD in business. <laughs> uh, give me five minutes, I'll come with you. You know, I'll go change and I'll come. And so that's the irony that uh, of the group of eight, I'm the only one who ends up coming to the US to get a PhD in business, right? Mm. Uh, for various mm. reasons. And I end up getting a full scholarship from multiple schools, I ended up going to Columbia and uh, getting a PhD in marketing. And the reason I chose mm. marketing, I didn't like finance. <laughs> that's the only reason I chose marketing. And uh, and I become part of this profession now. And I, you know, but having fallen into it, you know, I didn't grow up with a dream of becoming a marketing professor. And I don't know, this is what I want to do with my life. I mean, I don't know how many kids that do. So I, I always had certain skeptical outsider way 
of looking at it, you know. Mm-hmm. And especially you come to the US, yeah. now, remember 1981, the contrast was yeah. incredible. So here's India, which is kind of a semi-socialist, closed economy, you know, very little marketing. There's no commercial television, no ads, you know, etc. It's just very, very little, right? And a few billboards and a few things. Uh, you come to the U.S. in the 80s, which was later known as the decade of greed, and Ronald Reagan was, you know, it was, it was the uh, like a tsunami of marketing, right? Mm. I mean, New York mm. City, 1981, you know, yeah. New York Times was like three inches thick with ads and coupons, and you know, the little airplanes in the sky carrying little ad banners. And you stand, urinal, there's an ad in front of you, and there's a crazy Eddie on the TV saying our prices are insane, and they're going out of business every week, and it's just like. I said, my God, this is madness, right? And, (laughs) you know, they say fish are the last to discover water. Well, I was a new fish brought into this ocean. So I did discover water, right? Because I didn't see that. So I could see all. I said, my God, what are we spending? And what impact is it having on customers, companies, and society? So those were the questions that framed my work, my academic work for the next uh, 10, 15 years, you know, Uh, the ethics of it. The efficiency, the effectiveness, the ROI, the impact, as I said, on customers, companies, and society. And all my research over that period, a lot of academic articles, you know, and eventually culminating in a book called Does Marketing Need Reform? All the answers were no, negative, that we are actually being hurt. You know, that $1 trillion of marketing, it was shocking to me in 2004, we were spending uh, literally $1,000 billion on marketing in this country, one twentieth of the GDP of this country was going to ads, coupons, and junk mail. And it was more than the GDP of India. We were spending oh, more here wow. on ads, coupons, and junk mail. The GDP of India that year was 700 billion in the year 2004. Wow. wow. A billion people are living on less than what we're spending here on ads, coupons, and junk mail. And what are we getting for all this? And I found mm-hmm. companies get lousy returns. 99% of ads are never noticed. 98% of coupons are never redeemed. You know, 96% of junk mail, you know, direct mail goes straight into the trash. It's enormous waste, right? Uh, customers don't trust marketing. This was a big thing for me. You know, I wanted to be doing something meaningful. I was an idealistic person, you know, going back to as a child. And, and I get a PhD in marketing. My inner dialogue was my father got a PhD in cytogenetics and plant breeding. He wanted to cure world hunger. And I get a PhD mm-hmm. in marketing. I just want to sell more potato chips and Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm not doing anything noble or worth, worth you know, uh, respectable, right? So I had this deep sense of shame in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Ambivalence bordering on shame about my own work. And when my research showed, as I wasn't surprised that most people don't trust, if it's marketing, that means it's not real, right? Yeah. 85% yeah. of Americans yeah. don't trust anything that comes from marketing, right? And so, and then society, if you look at what's happening to society, what's happening to your popular culture, because of yeah. a trillion dollars being pumped into it every year with all these ads and, you know, defining what's supposed to be a good life and using women's bodies to sell products and what that does to the psyches of young women and eating disorders and depression and, you know, body dysmorphia and, and aggressively marketing children, you know, junk cereals and co, you know, all junk food and, you know, and marketing elderly people. I mean, the, the consequences for society, I saw were many, rising obesity and diabetes and mental health issues and their consequences, yeah. right, um, that all of this has. So so I just became deeply, deeply uh, depressed in a way about the state of marketing. As I said, we did that book, Does Marketing Need Reform? And then I started a book, I was going to call it The Shame of Marketing, Ooh. which was a yeah. phrase used by Peter Drucker, 
to refer to the consumer movement in America. He said, the consumer movement is the shame of marketing. Marketing's job is to look after the well-being of customers. And if they have to organize against companies, well, that's a failure of marketing. And I was going to use that as a title for a book that describes everything, all the you know negative effects that marketing is having in the world. Yeah. So it was called The Shame of Marketing. It was really about my the shame of Raj, in a way, right? It was my mea culpa, you know? And like you said, I had been to the guru gallery you know, of marketing. <laughs> I said, that is a dubious distinction at best, you know? I don't want to be in the guru of marketing. So um, fortunately, my mentor, Jack Shet, uh, looked at that book proposal that I sent him and said, Raj, you know, people in this country want to hear about the solution. So we've been writing about the problem for the last 10, 15 years now. Let's let's now look for a solution. You know? So that simple insight just turned around, you know, and I called it In Search of Market Excellence. Uh, and I said, as a working title, I said, companies are spending enormous amounts of money and yet customer loyalty is down, customer trust has plummeted, right? Ooh, uh, yeah. Despite spending is going up and customer satisfaction has plateaued and customer loyalty and trust have fallen sharply. So something is wrong with that picture. Everybody else yeah. is doing more with less. We are doing less with more in marketing. And we are yeah. having a couple effects. Yeah. Right? I said, let's in search of marketing excellence, the premise was very simple. Which other companies don't spend a lot of money on marketing and yet their customers love them? Hmm. Right? And how do, they, how do they do it? Like How do they manage the marketing function for that to happen? And that's how I discovered Whole Foods and a few other countries, uh, companies. We had five in the beginning. Jordan's Furniture from Boston was one of them. You might remember yeah. who lived here, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they spend one-fourth the industry average on marketing, and their sales per square foot was six times higher compared to the industry. I said, wow, what are they doing, right? Whole Foods was spending 95% less than the industry average on marketing. They're fanatically low uh, customers. So I started to look at what makes that happen, and I found it wasn't about the marketing. They barely had a marketing function. And mm. What they did was they cared for their customers and did what was right for their customers, but also that their employees were loyal and trusting and loved them, and suppliers and companies. So all of the stakeholders were connected to these companies deeply. Right? It wasn't just about customers. It's about treating yeah. everybody with, with care and respect. And it was a you know two-way relationship. The companies cared about people. These people deeply cared about these companies. They loved these companies. And yeah, so then yeah. I start out to say, wow, well, how does that happen? Right? What what uh, what are the factors that lead to that? And hence the, the title, Firms of Endearment, costs companies profit from passion and purpose. We discovered purpose was a big part of it. There's something meaningful these companies are trying to do. They're trying to change the status quo in their industry. They're trying to do something, solve a problem, uh, meet a need that others haven't done. And they're trying to do it in a genuine, caring way, not just as a way to make money, but as a way to make a difference. Yeah. So the higher purpose, the stakeholder mindset, and then, of course, leaders who were driven by by a service to people and the purpose and a culture where people actually were excited about what they were doing and look forward to going to work. And it had all these qualities, right? So that was kind of the discovery of these pillars of conscious capitalism, as we call them later. And um, and at the end of our research, now this is how this was different than most business books. When they start to seek best practices, they will look at a set of highly successful companies and say, okay, what made them so? Like good to great yeah. is a example, right? How did they go from being average to great performers? What changed? What was the... And so those are the lessons. Here we, we we found a set of companies that fit these criteria. They had purpose. They cared for everybody, et cetera. And we ended up with 28 of those companies, 18 public. And then we said, how do they do for their investors? Right? And we thought, well, you know, they're paying their people, frontline people much better. Some cases double like Costco. They're investing in their customer care, yeah. providing better employee benefits, uh, playing their suppliers well investing in their communities, investing in the environment, 
uh, even paying taxes at an average rate of 34%, which mm. is way above the, uh, the norm. So maybe there's less left over at the end of the day because investors get paid last. Right? But, but they're creating a lot of value that doesn't get captured normally. So we were going to show how to capture all that value right, with modest investor returns and say this is a better way to be. What we actually found was that these companies had outperformed the market by 9 to 1 over 10 years dramatically outperform even the good to great they are outperform good to great companies as well right so then it became a much bigger story it's like this is not a trade-off just like we talked about ambition and love right profit and purpose and love or love-based business and a profitable business is not a trade-off the two can go together beautifully yeah in fact you have more profit and more impact in the world right if you do integrate those two things and so that became a turning point in my own life I remember the moment as I was sitting with David Wolf. I'm sure you remember David, my co-author. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My great teachers. And uh, we were in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. And I was I was writing some of the stories of these companies. And I and I found myself literally with tears in my eyes. That was probably the last time I cried before the ayahuasca. <laughs> 20 plus years. Uh, and I said, David, I've I've never had tears of joy connected to my work. Mm. I've often experienced anger and you know disappointment and frustration and other things, but but this is my body is trying to tell me something here that this really matters that such deep humanity can exist within a for-profit publicly traded company. I didn't yeah. know this. I was never taught this, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so in that moment, in a way, my purpose found me. You know, yeah. I wasn't actively searching. I in intuitively, I was searching for a purpose. I didn't know in those yeah. days wasn't talked about right it wasn't like yeah 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 yeah. this this was 2004 5 6 7 and it was just not a not part of the culture and so but without knowing it i had been following my heartbreak as andrew harvey said Hmm. you know follow your heartbreak what gives you pain and others don't even care right and all all the stuff about marketing my the other people in my doctor program thought i was odd like why are you focusing on all that you know (laughs) Right, why not figure out a way to increase market share or do all these things, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was, you know, pained by certain things. I was following my heartbreak, and then on the other side, Joseph Campbell said, "Follow your bliss. Mm. What gives you joy? What brings tears of joy to your eyes?" Right? Yeah, yeah. And this is what that was. So somewhere between those two things is your purpose, right? Because those are those are connected, right? It's the healing of that pain that brings you that joy. And I said, wow, here are companies that are not only not exploiting and, and using their customers. Here are the companies that are doing these beautiful things, not only for customers, but for employees, for communities, and all of these, uh, you know, yeah. all of those. Yeah. So I said, wow, this is a story I want to be part of. You know, I said, I, I thought this is what I want to dedicate the rest of my life to. You know, so the book came out. I had a mind map for what I was calling the Institute for New Capitalism or Inc. I still have it on my computer. That was my vision for what I wanted to do coming out of firms of endearment. And I got no traction on that whatsoever until I met John Mackey. But, but you had a good acronym, INC. It was I had dink. an acronym, yeah. <laughs> you had an acronym. It was <laughs> That's half the battle. And so, yeah, then a few months later, John invited me to spend a day with him in, uh, in Austin. And at the end of the day at dinner, I showed him that mind map. And I said, this is my dream and my vision. And he said, that's exactly my vision, but I like the phrase conscious capitalism. So that's how we had the retreat. And I asked each of us invited a group of friends to come to that retreat at his ranch. Yeah. yeah. Months later, and you were one of the people I thought of because you and I had met. Uh, yeah. Before that. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's how it happened, you know, and that's how that then manifested into this beautiful movement. That's, that's uh, yeah. impacting the world. Well, maybe talk a little bit about that 
the arc of that because in the arc of conscious capitalism also lays a number of other books that you wrote along the way and um maybe combine that about the the books that you wrote and how that deepened your understanding of what it meant to be a conscious capitalist company yeah and so i think each of these books um so the book i think that came after conscious capitalism was uh everybody matters i think yeah so yeah. we wrote the book conscious capitalism in 2013 right we started the movement in, in 2008 um well, one of the things that I had observed in these companies, even though they were led by men, most of them, we had some women like Sally mm -hmm. Jewell and REI and uh, Terry yeah. Kelly and Moore and others, but most of the others were led by men, as are most companies. But I found there was a lot more caring and nurturing and compassion and empathy. I mean, the firms of endearment idea, right? The business is built on love yeah. and care. And so I said, there's more feminine energy in these companies. Most mm -hmm. businesses, most governments, most institutions in society are dominated by men and by masculine energy. And that's been true yep. for millennia. And I said, in these companies, we're seeing a lot more of this other energy. And I think that's the source of their not only distinction, uh, differentiation, but also their strength. Ultimately, love is the most powerful force in the universe. People will do incredible things out of love, right? Where they will only do certain things out of, you know, carrots and sticks can only get you to do so much, right? But love can yeah, get you. Yeah, yeah. And so... Yeah. Uh, so that observation then led me, we had a conference in Boston, I'm sure you were there, the uh, Conscious Capitalism Conference, where the theme was uh, uh, the feminization of, of culture and business. Yeah. 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 And, and ultimately that then led me and Nilima to write the book Shakti Leadership, which was about that, embracing feminine and masculine power. It's not about replacing the masculine with the feminine, but about becoming whole, integrating the two aspects of what it means to be human, right? Masculine or, or any, any species for that matter. And how do you become whole? Right, and you don't have to be limited by 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 that what you were born into or that gender. That you can ultimately have the best of both of those elements. And I think that was obviously a parallel journey for me internally, as well. You know, because I was more like my mother. I was yeah. uh, more gentle and uh, you know uh, nurturing and those kinds of things. And and I had some degree of shame around that, you know, because my father made mm. it clear that he saw all of those things as weaknesses. Right? He's yeah. Like, you're too trusting, yeah. you're too yeah. uh, peace loving, you know, you're too uh, idealistic, you're too intellectual, you need to be, you know, street smart and, you know, rough and tough and, uh, you know, don't trust anybody and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I had yeah. some kind of, yeah. you know, the programming is runs deep, right? And so this sense in yeah. society, we do use those feminine qualities as a way of shaming people. Right, especially both yeah. even women yeah. don't act like this or whatever. You know, yeah. The language we can we can think about, and so I book was part of my healing as well, and my coming to be embarking on the journey of my own wholeness. Right, you know, which uh, which has been part of the story for the last uh, last ten years for me is getting to that place of wholeness, and then um, a book called Everybody Matters with Bob Chapman, which was about honoring. Everybody, not just you know some people. It's about everybody matters, and everybody needs to win in the, in the system. And how can we do that? Uh, and and the impact yeah. that it had on you know, the business was incredible, right? And I think that was a big part of my healing as well, because you know there's a caste system that exists inside companies that some mm -hmm. people matter more than others, right? We have the so-called yeah. high potentials that get sent to uh, leadership development yeah. programs, and then we have the managers and white-collar people who are given benefits, and you know. Uh, all kinds of ways to grow 
And then you have all the other people doing the actual work, the 70, 80% of people who are answering the phones or, you know, their cashiers or their drivers or their whatever. They're doing the actual, you know, they're on the factory floor, as they say. And those people yeah. are treated very poorly and not paid well and they have no benefits and they have no security and so forth. There's a kind of caste system, right? And I had come out of that caste system and this is about ending that caste system in business, right? And also it was planted the seeds for healing because I saw Bob Chapman as a healing leader and, and Barry Baymiller as a healing organization. And, you know, Bob is incredibly ambitious. You talked about ambition earlier, right? Bob is incredibly yeah. ambitious, but not on behalf of his own portfolio and wealth. You know, he doesn't, I mean, he's got you know, way more than he's ever going to need. He's not driven by that. And, you know, I asked him one year when I was uh, visiting him a few years after we wrote the book, I said, how are you doing, Bob? He said, oh, we're looking at about 12 acquisitions this year. <laughs> I said, Bob, when you wrote the book, you had 108 companies you had bought, right? Because he turned all yeah. these companies around. He discovered this formula. He bought companies yeah. and he, just turn them all around. From struggling, dying businesses that were going bankrupt in many cases are now thriving because of this mentality of putting people at the center and yeah. treating them with respect and dignity. And I said, Bob, you have 26 children and grandchildren and you have 108 companies. Now, when your number of companies exceeds the number of children and grandchildren, maybe you have enough, you know? And you're just <laughs> relaxing and enjoying your life. You've got this beautiful life and beautiful homes and all the things that you could be doing, you know? And he said, Raj, on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we built or the money I made. I'll be proud of the lives we touched. And before I die, I want to touch as many lives as possible. Yeah, and I said, beautiful. You're, not, you're not growing a business. You're spreading a healing ministry. Mm. The more your company grows, the better life gets for people. Right? There are people who are waiting in little towns across Ohio and Wisconsin and you know, even in Italy and Germany and you know, these little manufacturing companies that thought they couldn't compete and they were just going to die and those towns were going to die with them. Those people now feel they have a future because of what you're able to do, right? And so that planted the seeds of uh, for the healing organization, business as healing, yeah. right? Yeah. With the right energy and the right intention. Wow. This can be about reducing suffering and bringing more joy. But you can do the exact same business with the energy. I'm going to use these people to make as much money for myself as possible, right? Same business, same people, same location, same products. You're causing suffering now, right? But you do it that and you're caring for them, right? And expressing your own purpose through that, being ambitious on behalf of making a bigger impact, positive impact in the world. You know, you spread healing that way. And I think that's a big, yeah. big issue for business because most businesses run on empire building energy. You know, they're obsessed yeah. with their obsession with growth. It's a compulsion yeah. to grow. And the more you grow, yeah. the more you spread suffering in many ways, right? For yeah. people and you yeah. burn people out, right? And yeah. you let people off. Well, the wrong kind of growth, the wrong kind yeah. of growth, because it comes from the wrong place and it comes with the wrong right. motives. And But yeah. here there's an obligation, to, you know, not a compulsion, but an yeah. obligation to grow on behalf of all the people whose lives are going to be uplifted by that growth. So those are some of the learnings along the way, yeah. you know, through those books and then ultimately leading to, uh, to this one. And of course, the book that you and I and Timothy did on yeah. Yeah. How do you implement all of this? The field guide. How do you implement it? Well, I, I'm I'm fascinated for your 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 sort of reflections now on on having. I mean, you you've painted a really great arc from endearment through to the healing organization through to this book, Awaken, which is your most personal one. And as you look forward for business and conscious businesses and conscious capitalism. 
what are two or three of your big hopes? What are your, what are your two or three of the things that you think um, are part of the next stage for these movements to be successful, for this movement to, to be successful? Well, I believe it, it really does come down to leadership and mm. it's down to awakening leaders. You know, I think this idea of awaken, you know, is important. You know, we have to wake up. Mm. We have to open our eyes. We have to see reality as it is. We have to, you know, as Maya Angelou said, we do the best we can with what we know. And when we know better, we do better. And how do we get to that place of more and more people waking up to their yeah role and their responsibility and their opportunity as leaders um, so my mm. emphasis now with this book and and future work is really about how do we reach leaders at their deepest soul how do we touch the hearts right mm. and souls of leaders you know i define yeah. my purpose now is to bring heart healing courage um, soul and awakening to business and leaders yeah. so that we can build a better world yeah. for all Right. So I think that to me is really about it has to now zero in on the leaders, you know, because once you transform the leader, once you awaken the leaders, then everything mm -hmm. else that we talk about, you know, it, it, it's, I would say, relatively straightforward to implement. You know, these are yeah. talk about simple, yeah. simplicity. There's a simplicity to conscious yeah. capitalism, right? This is about treating people well, you know, yeah. the way you would yeah. want your son or to be treated as Bob Chapman says, everybody is somebody's precious child, right? Treat them that way. It's so like I have a child, yeah. You know, he those, states those it so well. Yeah. So these these principles are not complicated. They're the, they're the simplicity on the other side of complexity, but it takes a leader. Well, don't, but don't, don't 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 confuse simplicity with being easy. In terms no, of no. you know, it, yeah. it is. And and one of the things that I love about you know some of the the dynamic between you and I as well is. You know, I like to say that, you know, recently what I try to focus on is how do you help leaders have the courage and the confidence to go on this yeah. journey? And yeah. the way I would take it from our discussion is, you know, part of the awakening is developing the courage. It's about developing the heart that you need. And at the same time, we also need to give them the confidence that there is a roadmap, that there is... There is a way of going on this journey. We have some roadmaps and you can be confident that if you start taking these steps, you'll be guided and assisted on that. Right. But you need both. You need this yeah. courage and this confidence. Yeah. Uh, and for those leaders to take that first step, to start showing themselves and their organizations that this can really, really, really work for them. Yeah, and so, I would add, a th I like that, I would add community as well, because that community also can give yeah. you courage, right? When you have a group of fellow travelers that are on this yeah. journey with you, right? That yeah. uh, you can then yeah. draw. So yeah, you know, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, well, of course, I was going to say tribe, but you said C because it makes the three C's. <laughs> so it just works better that way. <laughs> well, Raj, I, I, I think we've covered a lot of territory. Uh, one thing we haven't touched upon, which I think is at the crux of this, is the idea of healing the leaders, right? Yeah. Which I think we might want to spend a few minutes on here because, you know, one of the things that okay. came to me in the silent retreat was the series of seven steps, which was about yeah, 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 yourself, yeah, yeah, yeah. know yourself, yeah. know who you are, what's your core essence, right? Live into that, develop, uh, love yourself, right? Mm. Uh, for me, that was a big leap. And for many people, it's a big leap. Many, most people I would say on this planet kind of hate themselves. You know, they only see their own deficiencies mm. and flaws. And in my case, because my father, who's such a towering figure in my life, 
right? Yeah. Who I didn't know until I was seven. And he came into my life at seven. But I always saw him as a very critical and harsh uh, eyes uh, that he looked at me. Uh, I, I despise myself. To the extent that I knew myself, I despised myself for decades. I said, why am I just mm. a bundle of weaknesses? Right? <laughs> I'm, mm. I'm born with all these defects. It's only in the last 10, 15 years that I've come to see those as my essential qualities and my strengths. Right, that mm-hmm. this is what I'm meant to manifest into the world. Right, that this is these are the qualities yeah. I was born with, and I'm meant to bring that into the world. So know yourself, love yourself, be yourself. Right, in the world, yeah. and then choose yeah. your life, as we talked about. All of those elements, experiences, traumas, wounds, etc., things that happened that you wouldn't wish upon your yeah. worst enemy. You say, you know what, I choose it because this is what enabled me then to do these other things that uh, was was part of my journey. Yeah. It's kind of that hero's journey. Uh, express yourself into the world, right? Bring that, you know, with ambition, etc. Uh, be that peaceful warrior. And then become whole. We talked about that. Integrate yeah. those yeah. masculine and feminine. We even go beyond that to talk about the elder and the child energy, right? So become yeah. a wise, yeah. full, tough love, right? The so, wisdom of say, the say that one again, because I love that phrase. That's one of my favorite yeah. phrases that you use. Become the wise, fool of tough love. Have the wisdom of the elder, yeah. the playfulness, innocence, the joy, the creativity of the child, and then be yeah. tough and loving at the same time, right? And the last one is healing yourself. And I think that is one which really mm. was the journey beginning in, in 2018 for me. Uh, and and it's, a, it's incredibly important because the fact is that all of us have mm. wounds and traumas. You know, there's a lot yeah. of talk about trauma, but, you know, it, it is a reality. I think that uh, being a human is not easy. Life is difficult and things happen to all of us. There are some predictable traumas yeah. that every person will go through. And there are many other traumas that are unique to us. And at the extreme, it could be war conditions or, you know, being a first responder, mm. etc. But mm. all of us have trauma. So we may not have a diagnosed PTSD. That's maybe 5% of the population. But I would say almost everybody has PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, right? And if you don't acknowledge that, there's no way to heal from it. So the first thing is you have to acknowledge it, right? So most people don't acknowledge that. Oh, I'm fine, right? But what do they do then? They, they you know, they uh, 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 numb themselves with alcohol and with drugs and all kinds of things, right? To to be able to deal with their own. Yeah. Or ambition and success yeah. and the more toys they're, they're I have, from the something, happier I'll right? be. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. The yeah. money, the pursuit of power and ego. I don't know that's coming from a place of hurt yeah. and, uh, and and wound. Yeah, uh, yeah. A healthy place, right? So with yeah. these wounds and traumas, you say most people, what do they do? They conceal it and then they numb it and then they have to relive it, right? They don't talk about yeah. it, then they'll numb yeah. it. My father had to do that every day. He had to drink and he had to take sleeping pills, you know, just to numb the, the his own traumas, which we yeah. don't get. But yeah. what we really have yeah. to do is reveal it and feel it in order to heal it, right? And so talk about it, get into the open, allow yourself to feel it and then heal it. There are many, many modalities now for healing trauma. You know, I just came from a few weeks at Costa in Blue Spirit in Costa Rica, and we had some of the world's leading experts on trauma there, Gabor Mate and Bessel van de Kock, who wrote The Body Keeps the Soul, yeah. many others. And there are literally like a dozen modalities now, including psychedelics for healing. And so I think that is one yeah. thing that is an essential piece of this, because until you recognize those wounds and work on healing them, yeah. they will, in fact, drive your life and cause you to act and behave in certain ways. You won't even know why, why you're doing what you're doing, because it's your wounds that are speaking. And so it's a great responsibility, I believe, for leaders and all of us, ourselves and the people whose lives we impact, to work on our own healing. And the more we heal ourselves, the more healing yeah. impact we will have through our leadership in the organization. 
And so that is something I strongly, yeah. strongly urge and, and plead with people. Please look inward. You know, yeah. Look at what needs to be healed within yourself. Well, we've always said that an organization should be more conscious than the level of consciousness of the leaders. Yes. And I think that you've really taken that to another level in terms of, you know, if you want to have a healing organization, you have to do the healing yourself. Yeah. And you have to be more of a whole human being as you step into this. And and I think you're you're absolutely right. It's it's in that when you're coming from that place, you do have the courage and then hopefully eventually the confidence mm -hmm. to start working and showing up as a leader inside your organization to make your organization go on this journey or help your organization to go on this journey so that it does become a healing organization a real conscious enterprise and a force for good in the world so thank you raj for 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 tying that loop back together again yeah. of that part of the story raj it's been you know uh, a real pleasure being your partner on this journey, both for the two podcasts we've had, as well as working with you in the conscious capitalism movement, our book together. But for me personally, just watching this arc play out and seeing how you're having a real impact in the world has just been a been an honor and a privilege. So thank you so much, my friend. Well, thank you, Timothy. It's been a joy having you in this journey alongside as well. You've added so much. Well, thank you. And thank you to Tech Sounds and Tech de Monterey for sponsoring and helping us produce this. And if you enjoyed this week's podcast, please feel free on whatever channel you're listening to hit the subscribe button or go over to Apple and iTunes and leave Raj and I a rating and some feedback. Thank you all, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>